Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, MDMA, Ecstasy, Molly, all names for the party drug that keeps ravers up all night dancing. Fast forward to today, and researchers are on the verge of seeking federal approval to use the drug to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, which is just one of the many potential therapeutic uses scientists are looking at. Research is unfolding on how MDMA could treat addiction, eating disorders, and depression. We'll explore it all with Rachel Neuer. She's the author of the new book, I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. She joins us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Leslie McClure again today for Mina Kim. Few drugs in history have generated as much controversy or held as much promise as MDMA, writes science journalist Rachel Neuer. From cutting-edge labs to pulsing club floors to the intimacy of the therapist's couch, we're going to discuss the rich history that is rewriting our understanding of MDMA. We will separate fact from fantasy and hope from hype. Rachel Neuer is an author and freelance science journalist who's written for outlets like the New York Times and National Geographic. Her new book is I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's just kind of get a basic understanding of what MDMA is doing inside the body and the brain. So what exactly is happening when someone takes MDMA? That's a great question. So when someone takes MDMA, there is a flurry of activity in the brain. MDMA primarily acts on serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter that's sort of a jack of all trades. It affects everything from sleep regulation to appetite to mood. What MDMA is doing in terms of serotonin is um, it's not only blocking the reuptake of neurons, uh, taking serotonin, like a traditional SSRI medication would. It's actively um, causing neurons to pump serotonin out into synapses, increasing the amount of serotonin that's active in the brain. Um, So that's really the main mechanism of action. Um, There's also cascading effects with oxytocin and with other uh, neurotransmitters and hormones. But it's that dumping out of serotonin that is really MDMA's uh, trademark. And how should we classify MDMA? I mean, is it a psychedelic or what exactly is it? You're getting straight to the, the hard questions. I love it. Um, so, yeah, this is a very long-standing question. You know, is MDMA a psychedelic or is it not? Um, psychedelic was coined uh, basically to mean ma- mind manifesting. So I think at that basic definition, MDMA does meet it. That said, there's some really interesting neuroscience research that's coming out of a lab at Johns Hopkins University, run by a scientist named Gould Olin. 
And Gould's findings are that at the uh, most basic mechanistic level in the brain, MDMA is doing the same thing uh, as LSD, psilocybin, ketamine, and ibogaine. So these are more classic psychedelics as well as ketamine, which we don't really think of as a psychedelic. And this occurs when um, these drugs are taken therapeutically. So I think that uh, this new research that finds that mechanism, which is down to the level of gene expression, really is sort of a mic drop on this question of, is MDMA a psychedelic? So my answer is yes, or my vote is with yes, until uh, other research comes out disproving otherwise. Well, you wrote about your experience taking it. So give us a, a sense of, of what it was like when you when you took MDMA. <laughs> So I have never done MDMA-assisted therapy, so that's a big caveat. I know people who have, and I've you know interviewed dozens of people who have as well. I personally have only ever taken MDMA recreationally. I came to it um, relatively late in life. I you know I grew up in uh, the I was born in '85, which was the year that MDMA was put onto Schedule One. So I've I've actually never known a world in which MDMA was legal. I grew up a dare kid, you know, say no to drugs. I was uh, very anti-drug, but as I got older, I just got more curious about um, consciousness, about different states of being, about experiencing everything that life has to offer. So I took MDMA for the first time, um, I think it was probably like 2013 or 14 at a warehouse party in Brooklyn, and I was just blown away. I, I was sort of nervous going into it that, you know, I would start spontaneously like making out with everybody around me on the dance floor. <laughs> but in fact, I was really pleased to find that I had more control on MDMA than I did if I've, you know, had a number of drinks, alcoholic drinks, that is. Um, you know, it's it's hard to describe the experience of any drug. With MDMA, it's waves of euphoria, which is why people call the recreational experience rolling. So if someone's rolling on the dance floor, they're on MDMA. Just this wonderful feeling like, you know, everything is okay in the world. You're in the present moment. All your anxieties and your sort of neurotic tendencies and your ruminations go away. You're just with the music. You're with your friends. You're with the crowd. There's this sense of unity, of connect connection, of oneness, and just of pure joy at being alive in this beautiful moment on this planet. And what did it feel like? I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask, what did it feel like in the days afterwards? Because I know when you have that serotonin uh, drop, it, it can be a little bit painful. Yeah, so this is a really interesting question, and it's one that has not been answered um, by scientific research yet. So there is this um, popular, uh, I don't want to say myth, but knowledge that MDMA can cause some people to feel really sad, really bad in the days after taking it. Um, some people refer to it as, you know, the Suicide Tuesdays. You drop MDMA on Saturday and then a couple days later you just feel really low. I personally have never experienced that. If anything, in the days after I take MDMA, I'm sort of in this MDMA glow state, you know, I'm uh, less anxious, I'm more relaxed, I can like reflect back on that experience and return to the, the happiness of that moment to sort of keep me level. Um, in scientific research on uh, patients that have taken MDMA therapeutically, researchers have also not ever found an effect where MDMA causes this mood uh, swing, you know, this low mood swing. That doesn't mean, though, that it doesn't happen. It's just we don't know 
why it happens, in whom it happens. Like some people, for example, posit that perhaps it's not just the MDMA. It's the fact that you're out all night dancing. You're not eating. Maybe you're dehydrated. A lot of people take MDMA and they mix it with other drugs like alcohol or ketamine or cocaine or, you know, whatever else. So you're really beating your body up. Um, that said, I have friends who do have a, a raver lifestyle and they go out and they do other drugs and they say that when they do do MDMA, they have this specific low mood afterwards. So I think something's there. I just don't know. Um, you know, we don't know as a community or scientists who it affects and why. Gotcha. Well, do we know then basically how safe it is? You know, for years, there was a lot of questions about how safe taking MDMA was. There was even, you know, propaganda campaigns, kind of anti-drug campaigns and posters that, you know, with phrases, your brain on ecstasy, and it made your brain kind of look like Swiss cheese. So I assume at this point, we know that it doesn't put holes in your brain. But do we do we know what it does to your body and sort of, you know, long term if you're taking it? Yeah, fortunately, MDMA does not cause your brain to become Swiss cheese. Um, yeah, that that was a really unfortunate ad campaign, and uh, it was based on just like a, a, a normal neuroimaging showing oxygen flow states in the brain, and it was completely misconstrued. But anyway, yeah, through the 1990s and early aughts, uh, there was a lot of focus on MDMA neurotoxicity. So that is damage that MDMA causes to the brain, to neurons or our brain cells. And there was tons of uh, government funding pumped into this, tons of research done on it. But a lot of that research uh, was um, later critiqued as not being done really rigorously or even poorly because oftentimes uh, labs were not controlling, for example, for ravers taking other drugs. Um, so they didn't really have a controlled sample size. Or they were giving animals doses of MDMA, you know, hundreds of times or 10 times more than any human would ever take it. There was even a study um, that was published in the renowned journal Science in the early aughts. Um, and it was sort of like the definitive, you know, this is MDMA. It's going to like cause everyone who takes it to get Parkinson's. It affects dopamine systems. All these monkeys died. But um, in fact, the researchers had accidentally given their animal test subjects methamphetamine instead of MDMA. <laughs> small and, detail. Yeah, just just a small detail mix up there. Um, so yeah, that study was retracted and it just sort of came to be hailed as um, an example of the politicization of science. You know, that the fact that those monkeys all died should have been a red flag to those researchers that, you know, maybe something was remiss in the scientific design. Um, anyway, all of that is to say that um, we know today that MDMA does cause acute a temporary depletion of serotonin in the brain. You know, it's something like 80% of your serotonin is actively used. Um, in heavy users, there can be some anecdotally reported memory loss, you know, if you're taking MDMA every weekend for years on end. Um, but there's also evidence that if given time and if you stop, you know, pounding your brain with all this MDMA, uh, your brain does recover. There's not permanent damage and it certainly doesn't impact your dopamine system like that flawed study said it did. So I think the neurotoxicity debate for MDMA has pretty much been put to rest. Um, that said, MDMA can be a dangerous drug, um, you know, like virtually anything in life, including water. If you take too much of it, it can it can hurt you and it can even kill you. You know, there are deaths attributed to MDMA. 
But it's on the table, you know, at, at the FDA to potentially be, you know, changed from right now it's a Schedule One substance in it, you know, which means that it has no medical use and it has a high, <laughs> high potential for misuse. And if, you know, the FDA changes that and, and we get approved, MDMA could be used to treat PTSD and that could happen as soon as this year? Yeah, I mean, okay, so it's looking, it was thought this year, but at the pace of bureaucracy and also the scientific uh, publication process, now we're looking like more like this time next year. So within a year is probably safer to say at this point. Um, And I will add as a caveat to my earlier point that the doses that people are being given therapeutically are there is no proven harm you know you're looking at small side effects like some nausea or you know teeth grinding you are not going to overdose on mdma on a therapist's couch as long as you're with a reputable therapist um but yes in terms of the timeline i mean this has been a 37 plus year journey of a really dedicated group of activists, scientists, doctors, um, to try to bring MDMA back into the light of respectability in terms of a therapeutic agent. And they've completed the first of two phase three clinical studies, which um, is what the FDA requires for any new drug to um, to be approved for market. And they have now completed the second of those two necessary studies, um, and it's going, it's undergoing peer review process right now. Once that study is published in the scientific literature, then um, these researchers can submit an application for a new drug approval for the FDA. The FDA has a certain amount of time to respond, um, and yeah, then MDMA will be approved, and the DEA then has to automatically take it off of Schedule One because. Like you said, um, it can't be listed as a Schedule One drug if it has medically approved value. Well, we'll get into a lot more of the the history and what that means and where this is headed. Uh, Just after this break, we're talking about the history and future of MDMA with Rachel Neuer. She's a author and science journalist. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurigan today for Mina Kim, and we're talking about the history and future of MDMA. 
From rave dance floors to now the halls of medicine, and scientists are on the verge of seeking federal approval of the drug for therapeutic use. And we're talking to Rachel Neuer. She's an author and freelance science journalist. She's also the uh, new author, excuse me, of the book, I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. And we want to hear from you. Have you taken MDMA in a therapeutic setting? Would you consider it? Have you taken it recreationally? And would that experience inspire you to, to try it therapeutically? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We'd love to hear about your experience. You can also email your comments or your questions to forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. And Andy writes, I did my first MDMA-assisted psychotherapy last August. Afterward, I discovered that an inner self-loathing had subsided. My next session was in October. After that journey, my 50-year addiction to cannabis cannabis evaporated. I have done an additional session since then, and I plan at least one more. I did not experience any euphoria or feeling of being high from the therapeutic use of the drug. Each session lasted eight hours and and involved talking out my difficult experiences with my therapist. For me, MDMA psychotherapy has been nothing short of magic. Well, that's a pretty good sell. Uh, Rachel, kind of describe exactly what does someone go through? What does a therapeutic session look like? And yeah, kind of give us the, the nuts and bolts of what that would mean or look like for someone. I mean, that was a really lovely introduction and um, pretty much summarizes it from a subjective point of view. So I really want to thank that listener for writing in and sharing their experience. Um, So, yeah, people who do MDMA in a therapeutic context do not often experience that euphoria. Um, You know, if anything, they'll say, I don't know why this is called ecstasy, because it tends to be a, a lot of hard work. You know, if people are using MDMA to address their trauma, they're delving into some of the most painful and um, at oftentimes deeply buried memories and impulses that have gathered across a lifetime. In terms of what is happening in the brain, um, scientists are still um, uh, trying to figure that out. But to bring it back to that lab at Johns Hopkins, Gould Olin's research indicates that what um, is actually happening when you are in a therapist's office and you're primed to do this work and a therapist is there to guide you through this work, what happens is something called a critical period opens. And critical periods are what neuroscientists refer to as these um, finite windows of malleability that occur in the brain, usually during childhood. And they exist to help us learn new skills because, you know, we come into the world um, and there's just, there's too many new skills for us to just be born into. You know, think of all the languages that are out out there to learn, all the cultures, all the uh, motor movements. So what MDMA is doing in that therapeutic context is returning the brain to that childlike state of openness. So it's not erasing your memories of trauma um, that caused your PTSD or that are driving your substance use disorder. What it's doing is it's allowing you to reevaluate those memories and come at them with a new uh, perspective and come out of that experience with a new understanding. Um, It also inspires feelings of empathy, compassion for the self, um, forgiveness, you know, for yourself, for others. Um, And it lowers activity in the amygdala, which is the brain's fear center. So you can kind of reevaluate and interact with memories that otherwise are just too painful or too scary to to deal with in your non-MDMA time in life. And paint us a picture. So someone calls a therapist and how does that sort of unroll in terms of what does it look like in the office, et cetera? 
So right now, uh, you know, someone would have to call an underground therapist because MDMA-assisted therapy is illegal, um, which comes with a whole set of, you know, its own problems in terms of finding somebody who's been vetted and ensuring, you know, their medicine is what it is and um, that they're following a good protocol. But let's say you are a study participant in um, one of these phase three clinical studies. You enroll in the study. Um, you go through uh, several preparatory sessions. So you don't just you know show up like, hi, I'm Rachel, I'm here to do the MDMA-assisted therapy. You've met your therapist, you know, you've had some actual just normal therapy, not with the, the aid of the drug. Then on the day you go in, um, you receive the drug, it's gonna usually be either a placebo or MDMA. Um, you're lying back on a couch and there's always two therapists present. Um, and you know you wait you kind of chat and it takes usually it depends on the person but between 20 minutes to an hour to really start kicking in there's usually um, a soundtrack playing um, some neutral music uh, to help kind of guide you through this journey and everybody's different some people get really chatty and want to you know talk through their their trauma or talk about their experiences some people get really introverted and just you know close their eyes and go inside. Everyone's given an eye mask and headphones um, so they can, you know, go deep inside or they can take off that eye mask and that headphones and interact with their therapists. And regardless, the therapists are checking in with them um, across the session. And there's always an option to be given a second dose of MDMA, a booster to uh, continue the experience, to give you a little bit more runway. And yeah, it usually lasts, you know, seven to eight or nine hours. Um, after you come down off the experience, um, you have several what's called integration sessions afterwards where you meet again with your therapist, discuss what you learned, what you saw, um, uh, you know, what it means, and try to integrate those lessons, figure out ways to integrate those lessons into your sober life moving forward. Well, let's bring uh, callers into this conversation. That was a really beautiful picture that you just painted. I felt like I, I kind of went there. Uh, let's bring Andrew into the conversation. Andrew in San Jose. Hey, what's going on? You know, as I'm listening to this whole thing, I remembered my first time taking MDMA in college. And then I remember thinking to myself, wow, if I was drunk, I wouldn't even remember this night. I have blacked out drunk a few times in college. And after having that experience with MDMA, it was great. And then I started wondering, why are these things illegal? And I started looking up how some of these drugs or so-called drugs became illegal. And one of the first things I discovered was Harry J. Anslinger and mm -hmm. how he just basically threw marijuana on the schedule or created a schedule, and all of a sudden it was illegal. And then when you ask someone, hey, why is marijuana illegal? Why is this thing illegal? And they say, well, it's a scheduled drug. Why is it a scheduled drug? And then people go, I don't know. And then we end up in this situation where we are today where we're trying to legalize things that probably shouldn't have been made illegal in the first place. I think we're missing that part of just people going back and asking, why? Why is this law the way? Well, why let's, is this law the way it is? Let's do it, Rachel. Let's, let's dig in right, right where he – why is MDMA illegal? Yeah, you put that so well. And um, yeah, I think people are, just to comment on that comment, um, are starting to, to wonder that, you know, like with the medicalization of marijuana, they're like, wait a minute. This is this has medical value, yet we're still incarcerating and punishing people for using it recreationally. Why? Um, so Harry Anslinger, as our um, caller brought up, um, back in the early 20th century, um, was looking for ways. He was a politician um, and at the head of what um, 
later became the DEA, was looking for ways actually to repress minority communities. And marijuana was a really easy target he could pick. Um, if you criminalize marijuana, then you can essentially criminalize behavior among black communities in particular. So it was really a racist, politicized action against certain communities. This came up again, um, well, it came up with opioids, and that was against uh, with racism against Chinese immigrants. And then we really saw it rear its head again in the late 1960s when uh, the hippie community took up LSD and, you know, the hippies were also part of the counterculture and you can't make the counterculture illegal. You can't make protesting the war in Vietnam illegal, but you can criminalize LSD use and as a way to repress that specific community. Um, and then, you know, this war on drugs thing just became um, a big political movement. You know, it was something that uh, politicians could talk up to raise alarmist fears. You know, drugs are taking over community. Drugs are corrupting our children. Um, it became a, a voting issue. Um, and all the propaganda pumped out during the war on drugs in the 70s and 80s just fed into people's heads. And they weren't asking, well, some people were, but not everyone was asking that question of, wait, why? They were just believing what they were told. Wow. And and so it becomes a Schedule One drug, and then it becomes a party drug. Kind of catch us up on that history. Yeah. So MDMA's history is just fascinating, and I didn't know anything about it when I went into this project. Um, MDMA, uh, its therapeutic value was actually discovered in 1975. And before it was ever a party drug, it was a very, very popular uh, therapeutic catalyst used throughout the U.S. and um, a little bit in Europe and beyond. And it was just quietly used because all these therapists knew, you know, we are in the midst of the war on drugs. If news about this drug gets out, there's just going to be this knee-jerk reaction by the government to criminalize this thing that we're finding tremendous value in. Um, well, it did get out um, in the early 1980s, especially, um, you know, certain people saw that they could make money off of this drug and that, you know, if taken in a recreational setting, it did feel really good. So MDMA, uh, it, you know, it escaped from the therapist's couch and onto the dance floor, as people like to say. And it became really popular in places like New York City, um, in Dallas, in San Francisco, where people would take it at clubs and bars instead of alcohol. And, you know, it was just a really great time. Um, everyone loved it. People would sell it over the counter instead of alcohol. Wow. Legally. Really? Yeah. It, there was a time when you could go up and get a vodka tonic or, or a hit of MDMA? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And people were choosing the MDMA because, like, yeah. It's uh, it's a better feeling, you know, who wants to get blackout drunk and have a terrible hangover the next day and maybe like say and do things they really regret when they could instead be on the dance floor hugging it out with a bunch of strangers. Um, but it did catch uh, catch the attention of the DEA in um, 1984, and they put it on, um, they moved to put it on emergency scheduling in 1985. Um, Interestingly, uh, unlike LSD, the uh, medical and therapeutic community really tried to push back on this. They got together and they said, you know what, we're going to take the DEA to court and we're going to challenge this decision to put MDMA on Schedule 1 because we're going to prove that it does have medical value and therefore it cannot be a Schedule 1 drug by definition. So they took the DEA to court um, and the administrative judge at the time actually sided with these therapists and these psychiatrists, some of whom were very well known, you know, from Harvard University, for example. And the judge said, you know what, they are right. This has medical value. MDMA should be a Schedule 3 substance, not a Schedule 1. But because of um, just some like bureaucratic uh, rulemaking or whatever, 
the administrative law judge's decision it was just considered to be a suggestion. Um, and the DEA said, you know what, we're not following that suggestion. We're putting it on Schedule 1. So it's been there ever since. Well, let's, uh, Raza in San Carlos has a question for you. Raza, you're on the air. Yes. So thank you. Uh, I just was wondering, if because of the brain malleability increase, has it been tried in stroke patients to relearn use of uh, limbs and something like that? Thank you. Rachel? That's, wow, that's such a great question. It makes me wonder if you've been reading up on some of the interesting research that's been going on with stroke patients. So. Um, Back to Gould Olin at Johns Hopkins, she and her colleagues at the hospital there on the stroke ward are actually planning a study that will use MDMA and pair it not with talk therapy, but with uh, motor therapy. So they have created, um, aside from the MDMA, this really incredible program called I Am Dolphin, and it's this integrative software that tracks your hand movements and you um, you basically plug into the dolphin. You're standing in front of this big screen and there's a dolphin in front of you and a 3D tracking camera um, makes your hand into the dolphin and you play this dolphin game. And this is what stroke patients are being uh, trained with to try to regain some of their movements um, because it's fun. They keep um, investing in the game. Uh, however, the idea now is to give the patients some MDMA as they play that game. and this is a different setting than the therapist office. So instead of um, opening up their critical period to address trauma, they will be opening up their critical period to address motor learning. And the hope is that, yes, this will help them regain and, um, you know, all this function that they've lost. We don't know yet. The study has not been done, but um, it is being tested. And that's the big hope. I mean, it's pretty fascinating if you think about this open learning. I mean, I'm thinking about my four-year-old and her malleable brain and how quickly <laughs> she learns things. I mean, it seems like this could open up all kinds of possibilities. If it, if it was ever legal, right? I mean, maybe it's a good idea to learn a new language while you're high on MDMA. Or I, I don't know. Is there is that possible? Is it really just sort of like retransforming your brain into sort of that childlike malleability? Exactly. I mean, that's what um, some scientists suspect that, you know, just depending on this set and setting that MDMA and some other psychedelics could be this so-called master key for reopening critical periods. And, you know, if you go and take your Spanish lessons while MDMA, on MDMA, maybe you're going to come out with, you know, the fluency of your four-year-old and not have an accent and just pick it up really quick. None of this has been tested, um, but, you know, that is... Uh, a hypothetical possibility. I do want to raise, though, that on the flip side of that, um, there is, you know, nefarious purposes that this could be twisted to be used with. You know, imagine, for example, Charles Manson giving all of his disciples LSD and then brainwashing them while that critical period is open, um, which is what some scientists think, you know, accounts for the Manson family and just their adherence to, um, you know, his horrible doctrine. I will say, too, I'm a health reporter when I'm not hosting forum. And at a at a recent conference that I went to this summer, you know, psychedelics were, were the rage for anything, any kind of mental health disorder. But the uh, head of the National Institutes for Mental Health pointed out that, yes, the research looks wonderful at this point, but that the sus or the, you know, the patients that has been tested on are sort of the worst of the worst mm -hmm. at this point, and they're And they're fairly small studies. And really, over the long term, probably the, the, the research won't look quite as sparkly as it, as it does now. Does that sound about right to you? Oh, 100%. Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
pretty much everyone I talk to about, you know, future expectations says, yeah, there's going to be a lot of disappointment. You know, there's been a lot of hype in the media um, and around these studies, like, oh my gosh, look at these fantastic results. But regardless of what you're testing um, in clinical trials, you know, that's sort of ideal conditions. Okay, they chose the quote unquote worst of the worst patients, like people who have had severe PTSD for an average of something like 18 years. And it worked on many of them. But again, that's in sort of perfect conditions, you know, you're getting the best therapy, it's everything is controlled. Out in the real world, uh, things don't tend to go as smoothly. So I think, unfortunately, there is going to be a lot of disappointment or just sort of mediocre, lack, lackluster results. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a great point. I think, and, and Joe kind of underlines this, this point. Uh, a quick call to Joe in Richmond. Joe, you're on the air. For MDMA, but I, as an emergency physician, want to point out that there have been fatalities, mainly in young people who take a lot, dance all night, drink lots of water, and develop hyperthermia and swelling of their brain and can die. Now, I'm not sure if the stuff was uh, contaminated with maybe methamphetamine, but I think you should point out that there are some risks, especially uh, for what I just said. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, I think thank you for underlining uh, that there are risks. I think we were getting a little bit a little bit, you know, quote unquote sparkly about about MDMA. So I, I don't want our listeners to think that we are, you know, promoting it by any by any stretch. There's a lot more to learn here and we're really early in the, the scientific exploration. We're about to go to a break. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in for Mina Kim and we've been talking about the history and future of MDMA from rave dance floors to the halls of medicine. As scientists are now on the verge of seeking federal approval for the drug for the therapeutic use. And we've been joined by Rachel Neuer. She's a freelance science journalist and author of the new book, I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. And we'll be right back with her to talk about it more. And we want you to join us. So email your comments, your questions to forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram. Again, we're at KQED Forum. Or give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Maybe you've taken MDMA in a therapeutic setting and you want to share something about that experience. Maybe you've taken it recreationally and you can share what that was like. And maybe would that inspire you to use it therapeutically? Or maybe you're a therapist who could talk about what it's been like to treat patients. Again, give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. We'll be right back. Stay with us. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. 
So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim, and we're talking about the history and future of MDMA. That's ecstasy molly. You know, that's been used historically to dance all night, and now it's in the halls of medicine. Scientists are on the verge of seeking federal approval for the drug for therapeutic uses. And we're talking about those with Rachel Neuer. She's a freelance science journalist and the author of the new book, I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. And we just got a fascinating comment from a therapist. She says, I'm a therapist, and I can't say enough good about MDMA. It has been very useful to me in reassessing and processing traumas in my life and dealing with grief about the deaths of many loved ones in my life. I think it would be really useful to just about anyone. Also, I work with teens who are routinely prescribed heavy-duty medications. So it's ironic that so much is made about drugs that I think are really safe. I can't wait for it to be made legal. We've gotten a lot of questions, Rachel, about whether or not it's a good idea or can you take MDMA MDMA while you're on antidepressants. And I know you're not a doctor, but do you know if that's, uh, you know, counter to do? Uh, gosh, I just read a Q&A with an actual doctor yesterday um, about this question of, you know, do you need to be weaned off your SSRI specifically when you take MDMA? Um, the answer is yes, because those SSRIs are actually there to block the reuptake of um, serotonin. So for MDMA to be effective and um, even safer, you need to be off of SSRIs. Um, Great. Awesome. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's get uh, Neil on the air here. Neil in San Francisco. Welcome. Yes. Hi. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, I'm I'm like um, taking MDMA. The first time I ever took MDMA was like um, after my experience with MDA actually, and and that was two years later. Um, and then I took it in a non-clinical setting. So it's really important to understand that we don't have to take this in a clinical setting. It's actually non-clinical setting was actually much much better for me. Um, and uh, and I took a high dose MDMA, and it was like a very very dreamlike uh, experience. So the whole experience kind of for me was uh, taking place under deep ocean water. It was like a very beautiful dream, and I'm scared to death of deep ocean water. So mm. it was actually a very beautiful experience for me, and, and that's really opened my uh, heart up to taking uh, other things. After that, I took MDMA in combination with psilocybin, uh, like about four and a half grams of psilocybin, and then I also have done seven grams of psilocybin um, you know, later in June, which basically drew, blew the doors open for me, and that's why I'm doing the work in mental health that I'm doing today is because of that experience. Uh, since then, obviously, done LSD, ayahuasca, 5-MeO-DMT, and all of these different experiences uh, have really allowed me to actually live a beautiful and blissful life in spite of all life's challenges. So for me, it's really, really helped me with my trauma. Um, and so I, I, I'm like a big proponent of it. I'm also a big proponent of decriminalization because I think it's, it's beautifully effective in a non-clinical setting. And, and that, that's something that's super important because setting setting is, is crucial. When you say non-clinical setting, what do you mean there, Neil? That means you don't need to go to a, um, a therapist's office. You can do it in nature. You can do it at someone's house. You can, um, you know, it's, uh, they can come to you. Um, you know, we have to, unfortunately, have to, like, travel outside the country um, uh, to get access to this. And that's just totally uh, ridiculous. It's, a, it's very expensive to do that. And it should be decriminalized everywhere in the United States. So getting it off schedule 
which we super helpful. But you don't need um, a degree or a bunch of letters uh, behind your name to actually facilitate um, a therapeutic session. Thank you so much, Neil. Pamela writes, I have done many journeys with psychedelic drugs of various kinds. MDMA opens your heart. It is an eye-opening, heart-opening experience. I saw how it was connected to all of my natural surroundings, the land, the ocean, the light, the animals, other people. And all life was pure, bright, engaging, and loving. No fear, no worries, pure joy. I sat all day on a rock and was buoyed by the warm ocean water. I covered myself so I wouldn't burn from the sun. But apart from that concern, I felt no pain. All was simply perfect. And I have to say, again, as a science journalist, I've read some of the studies, you know, on MDMA and psilocybin, etc. And that seems to be the theme that you hear. And that is very therapeutic is you, is you have this oneness, uh, this experience of meaning in terms of your connection to the universe. And that's actually what can be pretty transformative. Uh, let's go to Don in Menlo Park. Don, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my uh, question. So this is a follow on from the gentleman who asked about stroke um, treatment, has there been work to see if MDMA um, would help dementia patients or Alzheimer's patients or other people with memory problems? And thanks. Thank you. Rachel? Gosh, that was that would be so needed, but I've not unfortunately heard of MDMA um, having that application. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I'm not sure if it would be helpful in that sense. Um, you know, there's all kinds of other indications that it's being explored for, you know, depression, eating disorders, substance use disorders. But as far as memory loss, um, unfortunately, no. What are some of the other uses? I think we've mentioned them briefly, but what are some of the other, you know, behind PTSD that are sort of on the table and potentially up and coming for how MDMA could be used medically? Yeah, the um, one of the furthest along is this use of MDMA for substance use disorders, specifically for alcoholism. So there has been a small study conducted in the UK on this. Um, I interviewed a gentleman who, uh, you know, had severe alcoholism. It was completely ruining his life. And he took part in this study. And, um, you know, his, his trauma, his trauma that was driving this behavior, you know, it, it hasn't magically disappeared or anything. But now he has the tools to, you know, recognize his triggers to, you know, deal with them on his own mentally instead of just turning to alcohol to numb that pain. So uh, substance use is a big one. Um, another one that's really fascinating to me, there's been a study on using MDMA to reduce social anxiety in autistic adults. And um, they had really fantastic results. You know, these are people who came in and had severe social anxiety that it was impairing their ability to interact with others, to be happy, to forge, you know, genuine connections. And after the study, um, you know, Social anxiety scores, you know, according to like the social anxiety test or whatever went down. But the more beautiful thing was just what um, the participants were able to do with their lives. So, you know, one guy went and got married and started a family. Another finished their college degree. Someone else who was obese lost a ton of weight. And one of them who had even been like paralyzed of all social interactions went on stage at a conference and spoke about their experiences. Well, let's bring uh, Gina into the conversation here. Uh, Gina, I think you're going to give us a, a counter counter opinion on all this. Hi, yeah, um, uh, I'm I'm calling because I have done MDMA and I've also done MDMA with uh, LSD, and they were non clinical settings, but they were sitting with a medical person in a non clinical setting. It was all, and it was you know good good medicine. I don't know what you call it narcotic. I don't know what you call it, but um, and I'm not against it um, at all. I think it's wonderful. I do, however, want to say that one of the times I did it, I took MDMA 
and um, it was a horrific experience. And it was hours of um, nightmares and just awful things happening and vomiting. And um, so I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying, like with LSD, you know, there's good experiences and there's not good experiences. So I just want to put a word of caution out there. Rachel, have you heard that of people getting actually physically ill from taking MDMA? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm really sorry that you went through that. Um, Yeah, like any medical treatment, some people are going to respond well to this, some people are not, and some people just won't have a response at all in terms of uh, the therapeutic value. People respond differently to MDMA. It depends on the dose. You know, um, my sister, for example, every time she takes it, bless her heart, she throws up. Um, I've had bathroom emergencies myself. Um, but as far as sustained, like hours long, like horrific, you know, physical symptoms, uh, I have not heard of that, but I'm not discounting your experience at all. Um, you know, I would say, okay, you know, was the MDMA tested? Was it definitely MDMA? Also, what dose was it? Maybe it was just like way too high of a dose um, for you. You know, everybody is different. Some people need a really light dose. Some people need a much heavier dose. Well, let's uh, let's bring Savannah in San Francisco into the conversation. Savannah, you're on the air. Hi. Um, yeah, I just had a point. I'm a huge proponent of obviously this um modality of treatment. Uh, But at the same time, I have also heard um, reported uh, cases of sexual assaults, specifically in these guided sessions, and um, kind of variations in unregulated or less than ethical practices on the guide front. And I know that it's great that it's accessible for people to facilitate these experiences, but also because everyone is so incredibly vulnerable during them, yeah, I was wondering if you all had any thoughts on just ethics in general in this space and how we can make sure that people are safe as well. It's as a beautiful, from this. Yeah, it's a beautiful point. I mean, it seems like until this becomes, you know, up from the underground, it's really going to be tough to regulate. Yeah, Rachel? Yeah, that's. I'm really happy you brought that point up because it's a very important one. Um To preface it, though, I'll say that this is a problem that affects therapy regardless of whether drugs are involved. So nobody knows the rate of abuse that's occurred with MDMA or other psychedelics-assisted therapy. But there was a study um, across mental health professionals in the U.S. that found an alarming 7 to 12 percent admitted to having had erotic contact with one of their patients or multiple patients. So this is a problem that affects therapy across the board. That said, when people are on MDMA or another psychedelic, they are much more vulnerable. You know, that critical period is open. They're malleable. They're impressionable. So if something bad happens to them, if their therapist violates them, it's going to be all the worse. I mean, they're literally on drugs. It's like date rape in a way. Um, So... There's no easy solution to this. Um, You know, humans are going to be humans and there's going to be bad actors who violate the system and take advantage of others. But among the community, there are pushes to create regulatory bodies. So, for example, at least therapists can get some kind of accreditation so that they can, you know, be like, okay, this person has gone through this, this test or whatever. And, you know, if they do violate someone, they can be held accountable. They can lose their license. Right now, though, all this therapy with psychedelics is occurring underground. So it's really hard to hold people accountable. Seems so important that, yeah, it becomes above ground because it's going to happen, you know, regardless. Exactly.
You're listening to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim, and we're talking about the history and future of MDMA. You know, it's moving from dance floors uh, to the halls of medicine as the FDA considers uh, approving it for for therapeutic use. We're talking to Rachel Neuer. She's a freelance science journalist and the author of the new book, I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. And we want to bring you into the conversation. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We have a really interesting uh, comment from Matthew. He says, I have many friends who have gone through MDMA therapy protocols, and I'm struck by the fact that the critical integration phase is typically under-supported. That means, you know, after the session, patients are often left on their own in the critical period of consolidation of new neural patterns. One reason is the cost of follow-up sessions. Can your guests comment on the aftermath of MDMA sessions? What is the best practice at this phase of therapy? What do we know, Rachel? Yeah, so um, I just keep talking about this research as John Hopkins, but I'm going to go back to Gould Olin's research. Um, she fascinatingly found that um, MDMA in mice, at least, um, once it opens that critical period, that critical period remains open in mice for a couple of weeks. So we don't know if the same holds true for humans, and if so, how long that critical period is open. But these findings imply that people, even after the drug has exited their biological system, are still in this state of impressionable, delicate openness. And that that suggests that they really need integration, they need support, they need help. And you know, if they go back to whatever environment they came from, and if there's traumatizing factors there at home or from society, you know, whatever good that MDMA therapy uh, has done might be erased and it might actually go the opposite way and they might be re-traumatized and things will be even worse. So yeah, price, cost of, of therapy is a big problem and it's a big challenge that people are working to solve to you know try to ensure that everyone who wants to access this therapy or who needs to can, um, but that is an ongoing challenge. Absolutely. Let's go to Michelle in Oakland. Excuse me. Michelle, you're on the air. Hi there. Um, I just want to say, first of all, I'm so happy that we're discussing this on forum today. Um, I've been a recreational user of MDMA for over a decade, and it's had a really powerful impact on me personally. While I do use it recreationally, I've had many experiences with it that I would describe as nothing short of entirely spiritual, and I found it totally integral for my personal growth and unfolding. And what it has allowed me to do is tap into really deep and profound levels of empathy, um, not just for other people in my life, but for myself. And I find that after having these experiences with MDMA, I'm opened for for a long time. Uh, you could call it an afterglow, but I try to really carry it with me. And I find it deeply comforting to know how much love is inside me, even if it has to be, you know, activated first. And I wish that for any listener who's interested. Thank you, Michelle. Let's bring another call in, uh, Harriet from Redwood City. One more call before the end of the hour. To just reiterate what Michelle just said, because I was suffering from PTSD, and when you do that, you blame yourself. And when I took MDMA, although I threw up, once I got past that, I forgave myself, and I saw myself with such kindness um, and forgiveness for the first time that I could look at what happened to me in a way that I had never been able to before. Beautiful. Go ahead. She took notes and she took 18 pages of notes with no space. That's how much I talked. (laughs) 
<laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing, Harriet. You know, I, I want to close the, the show with, with a question that you posed in your book, Rachel, which is, why do you think we seek mind-altering substances? You, you bring up that question. What, what's your answer to that question? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I... I think we're curious, you know, we're curiosity driven creatures. And it's not just us, you see this behavior across the animal kingdom, um, you know, this, the scientific verdict is still out over whether elephants and, you know, apes and, you know, goats and cats are seeking to get high like we are when they seek out these substances. But um, I think we're just all curious creatures. And we want to know what's out there. We have two two comments. Noel tweets the answer to that. People seek out mind-altering substances because we need to get out of our old thought patterns and need a fresh way of looking at life, the universe, and everything. Another listener tweets, people seek out mind-altering substances because normal is boring. <laughs> Let's see if we can sneak in one final quick call. Nice. Joan and Marin. Hi, thank you. I um, have not heard quite enough cautionary tale throughout the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for doing your work. It does exist. We cannot legislate ethics, but that is a huge concern. I'm involved in 12-step recovery, um, MDMA, though it seemed wonderful, so did PCP, angel dust, horse tranquilizer. You go into an altered state and you can go into bliss. I know people who have lost their lives behind MDMA. And I think that's a really, right. Joan, we're just, we're cutting into the end of the hour. I think that's a good, a good underline for, to, to end our, our show on, which is that there's a lot more to learn here. You know, the FDA is just beginning to consider legalizing MDMA. And so I think what we're touching on is some of the amazing possibilities of using this drug therapeutically and medically. Uh, but definitely let's end on a, on a note of caution for sure. Uh, we've been talking about the history and the future of MDMA from, again, from the rave dance floors uh, of into now, the halls of medicine and scientists are on the verge of seeking federal approval for the drug. We've been joined by Rachel Neuer. She's a freelance science journalist and author of the new book, I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. Thank you so much for joining us, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. And thank you so much to all of our listeners for your amazing comments and questions. Uh, we really appreciate hearing from you and being a part of the conversation. Stay with us after this uh, for the rest of the news day or join us tomorrow morning and forum will be back at 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. Have a great day. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live.
Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.